Hello, my name is Anthony Thompson. I'm the CEO of the Kwame Building Group. You're listening to one of the greatest new podcasts in the city of St. Louis, Building Project Diversity. Please tune in and learn a few things about how you can improve diversity and delivery of your projects in the city of St. Louis. everyone, and welcome to another episode of Build St. Louis, the podcast that captures the very heartbeat of construction and development. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, owner of Information Works. And in this episode, we are delighted to welcome Anthony Thompson, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Kwame Building Group. Tony holds a Master of Science in Civil Engineering and Construction Management from Washington University in St. Louis, and he also holds an MBA from Webster University. His community service extends far and wide. Tony serves as a Vice Chairman of the St. Louis Regional Business Council, a board member of the St. Louis Police Foundation, board member with Missouri Baptist University's Foundation, and a board member of Maryville University. And for three consecutive years, I know that Tony has been named among the top 100 leaders to watch. Tony, we're so glad you're joining us today on Build St. Louis. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. I, I would be remiss to all my rock chalk fans if I didn't remind you that my undergrad was in architectural engineering from the University of Kansas. So all my oh. friends out there, I don't, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. And I learned something new. I didn't realize it was in architecture. So I thought it was in engineering. So that's awesome. No, thanks for including that shout out. Let's dive right into today's episode, which we've entitled Building Project Diversity. I'm so excited for our readers and our listeners and me as well to just learn from you about how you truly build project diversity into the very fabric of your company, your culture, and the projects you deliver. I wondered if you could start, Tony, by sharing with with us. You mentioned to me a while back how when you were just getting started with Kwame in the 90s, that you had an individual who was pivotal in your life and was generous to you and something about him sliding the keys to you across the table and oh, yeah, showing his yeah. support. But if you could share that story with us, I think that would be great. Yes, that is an interesting story. And it really did kind of help mold my philanthropic arm of, of what I do. My mother actually was the one growing up was always giving back and she's says, you know, none of us have made it until all of us have made it kind of attitude. And I kind of carry that with me. But when I was trying to start the business, I was working out of my house in the basement. I was like, look, if I'm going to be taken seriously, I need to have office space. So there was a wealthy gentleman in St. Louis. He was probably one of the wealthiest African-Americans in St. Louis because anyone who could have a Miller distributorship, Anheuser-Busch town, <laughs> had to have something <laughs> going on, right? So right. Colonel Clifton Gates. And so I developed my business plan. And I went to him as if I was going to present to a bank because I want to give him the same level of respect that I would give a bank. And I was going to ask for, you know, a loan or money to get my company started out. And so I presented the business plan to him. I gave him this long speech and presentation and so forth. And he sat across the table from me and said, so what do you need the money for? I go, well, I'm going to need you're going to need office space. And he slid the keys across the table to me. And he said, and he wrote down on the paper, the code to the alarm system. He goes, oh, so wow. what do you need the money for? I said, well, I need phones and stuff. He said, well, I'll put a line in for you tomorrow. So what do you need the money for? I'm like, uh. so it's like, I'm starting to run out of excuses. And I learned from that. It was like, you know, 
he made sure he took all the excuses away mm. from having to give me cash. And he gave me the resources or, or the facility rather that I needed. And I was there for about a year and he never charged me rent. He never charged me a dime. I gave him about 10 grand at the end of that year. And I moved on and I subbed these space in the Pierre Lecree building. And I kind of grew from there. But my beginning was I had like prime real estate right out the gate in the heart of Clayton. <laughs> That's so amazing. And I could see where that was truly impactful to you who, you know, you've been generous to many through the years. And I could see where that kind of was the footprint of the example of philanthropy and just supportive, you know, that he believed in you and what you were building. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the one thing, you know, he was an older gentleman, he's since passed away, but I would come in there at seven o'clock in the morning and he'd be sitting in his office when I came to work. I'd leave some evenings at six or seven o'clock and he'd still be in his office. He was in real estate and that sort of thing. And I used to sit and talk to him quite a bit about people just didn't know that he had that generous bone. You know, I would hear rumors and know that he was selfish and he was out for self. I'm like, but I've never seen it. I think, why is that? He said, anybody's ever come to me for help, I've helped them. He said, I'm not, but I'm not looking for people to help. <laughs> he said, the higher you climb, the more your butt's going to be exposed and people are going to be shooting at you. He told me that in the very beginning. I didn't know what he meant at that time. Oh my gosh. Older, I, I know exactly what he meant. That's a visual right there. I never heard that, but it helps you, right? When you're number one or you're succeeding. You know, when you said that, I thought about a ladder, like on a construction site, like you're yeah. climbing and yeah. people are wanting to hold on to your coattails. And you're pretty vulnerable. You know, you're up there and you're alone. You know, it's a, there's a lot of cliches that go, you know, it was lonely at the top, you know, you're up on the ladder, you're real vulnerable, you're at the mercy of whoever's holding the ladder at the bottom. So there's a lot that came from that statement. Oh, definitely, definitely. So Tony, back then, and I guess by back then, we mean 30 plus years ago, were there very many African-American male and female construction project managers back then? I can imagine there were very few owners as well of construction companies who are minorities, but in terms of the faces in the workforce, what did it look like back then? Well, you know, that's interesting because that also helped develop helped me to fine tune what it is I was going to pursue as an entrepreneur. I often wanted to have my own business even back when I was in high school, but I didn't know in what arena. And even once I graduated, I worked at the core out at the lock and dam and construction sites. I worked at Monsanto doing various design, structural design type work, architectural drawings. I did a lot of rehab stuff on the side. So I didn't know if I wanted to be in design or if I wanted to be in construction, but it all kind of came together for me when I was working with Anheuser-Busch where I was traveling around the country, handling 11 of the 13 breweries and everywhere that I traveled, I never saw any black project managers. I never saw any female project managers. And this is all over the country at this time, right? Right. So I'm like, wow. You know, so the space was very clear. It wasn't very crowded. So I decided, okay, I'll just start my business in owner representative type construction management work, which is all my experience has been there. That's what I was doing for the brewery. I, I went back and got my master's in construction management. So that's all I really knew. So it only made sense for me to pursue a business that I was most versed in. And to your point, if I were to look at my business plan, if you look at the list of the top 100 contractors in the St. Louis area in the construction industry, none of them listed construction management as their core business. Today, they all list construction management as their core business, but right. there were no minorities and there were no women. So not only did I not see individuals that were project managers or, or women or leaders on projects, there were no minority companies that provided oh. that service. So that was really the hallmark that really made me stay focused on that. And so now here I am 32 years later, there's still a few other competitors in the arena, but still very few minorities. 
Wow. It seems like a very basic question to ask, but why do you think that is? It seems kind of amazing. I talked to construction companies that are seeing the number of women increasing and other minorities, but the fact that that's still sort of at the spot where it is, you know, makes me scratch my head. Well, the analogy that I use is pretty much, I hate to use sports analogies because I I don't like to do that, but if you look at the trend, you know, there was a time when there were no black quarterbacks, right? And so once they broke that mold and you start to have black quarterbacks, then you start having a trend of black quarterbacks. And now this last Super Bowl, both teams had black quarterbacks, you know? And I think that over time, you begin to have more minority and women in the project construction management arena. But I think it's just going to take time for people, because again, we are the quarterbacks for the owners. We are the representative managing the projects on behalf of the owner from the design through the construction phase. Well, if you were to go back 15, 20 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find an African-American male or a white female with 15 or 20 years experience as project manager. So now you fast forward to today, my staff, most of the people that have been with me, we've been in the project management arena now for 30 years, 20 plus years now. So it's on the one hand, it's easier to compete because now we have that track record. We have that experience, which is what most people look for and ask about when you first get out there, but we still have a long way to go. So I try to recruit. I mean, you mentioned earlier, my staff is pretty much 80, 90% African-American and women. Most of my leadership here are female right now. I just hired a young lady who just finished her PhD in engineering from Rollo Engineering School. And these are the kind of people that I try to recruit and attract. And I think Again, to use a sports analogy, it's like when you look at these coaches that have won multiple championships, you know, the Phil Jacksons of the world, the Pat Riley's of the world. So it's like, why is it they could put together and recruit a team that could constantly win a championship every year? Well, it's simple. They both played in the NBA and they both had played on championship teams when they were playing in the NBA. So they knew what it takes to win. They know what it takes to win and they knew what type of people they needed to be successful. And that's why they have been successful as coaches. I look at the same way. I worked for some of the top companies in the industry, Anheuser-Busch, Monsanto, Core. So I saw the level of quality that they expect and the caliber of people that they hired. And I just used that same approach in my own business. And I like to say that we're a big company in a little company's body. I try to (laughs) to use the same level of professionalism, expertise, and quality that I learned in those organizations. But at the end of the day, I'm still a small minority-owned business, but I don't have to look like and I don't have to act like it. And so I think that's been pretty much the difference in our success. That is so intriguing to me. And you know, I'm going to go back in time for just a bit, but I meant to mention in the introduction that the Kwame Building Group holds the distinction of being the first African-American company in the state of Missouri to qualify as an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan. Is that right? That's a great, great feather in your cap. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but but, yeah, you know, (laughs) someone had to be first. (laughs) Well, I think that, I think the other challenge is the construction industry, they seem to be more right for employee ownership than most companies, you know, because most of the construction industry is based on relationships and family and they're all a little small type group. It's risky. So it's not like people are knocking on a door to buy a minority owned construction industry type company. It's not like we're at McDonald's, right? A franchise that you know you're going to make money. It's like winning a lottery, right? That's not the case. There's a lot of variables that they come into play. And I had gotten approached at one time by a large Canadian firm to buy me a number of years ago. I was real early in the career and so forth. We had a couple of major contracts, but I hadn't really developed yet. Plus, I was too young 
to sell, you know, I didn't know what happened, but I talked to a lot of people who I had relationships with. Mike DeCola, for example, was a gentleman that really instrumental in helping steer me in the right direction about that whole thing. But the thing that, that I re- that resonated with me was that if you sell the company, regardless of what your intentions are, you no longer have any say on what happens to that company. Exactly. Now, that changed my whole outlook because my whole purpose was to protect the people that I had employed that, that relied on me. I mean, I have 50 years old uh, families that are dependent on their job with the Kwame Building. I didn't want to sell it to someone who's just going to pick and choose and start laying people off. So I said, no, nah, well, I'll not do that. And as I continued to revisit it and I learned about ESOPs and, and I did my little research, I was like, hey, why not sell it to the company, uh, to the employees? I learned about leverage ESOP versus just you know, private equity type uh, or equity type buyouts. So the company, as long as the company is successful, issue shares to the employees. They don't have to pay for it as long as the company is successful. The loan that went into it is paid for by the profits of the company. So that's the closest thing to free money that anybody's ever going to get, right? <laughs> and I and think so, it retains your future workforce too. Like it retains the quality of- Well, that was, that, was the, that was the the plan. The, the challenge yeah. sometimes is some people still don't really understand or appreciate it because it's for retirement. And right. it's just a different generation now than where we came from. You know, They're not thinking about retirement, right? They just want the money now and this and that. So the individuals that were with me, most of them have kind of retired from the beginning. The ones that I really wanted to see the success of the fruits of our, our labor, they really retired too soon, in my opinion, to really get the full value of that. And so some of the newer employees that are coming along, we're still trying to educate them on the value of an ESOP. Wow, that's awesome. You know, I have a question here in the ones I shared with you about kind of how we title the terms when we're talking about MBEs and WBEs. And I just wondered just your thought about kind of labeling minority-owned firms as quote-unquote disadvantaged. Is that just what the industry, the best they could come up with? Or do you feel like that's somewhat of a negative stereotype? The word just sounds like it's it's not doing anyone any favors. It is. You know, the funny thing about probably going to get myself in trouble for (laughs) A lot of firms who really rely heavily on that designation for their Mm -hmm. perceived success or for their future. But for me, I always took it as a negative stigma. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Most people, most corporate people do not understand what it takes to even get the designation. Right. So I came from corporate America, started my business, thought that, hey, based on all my experience and all my education, that I open up my shingle and hang my shingle up and go to work and people are going to just knock down my door to come do business. I quickly learned that that wasn't the case because the system that is supposed to help us has really been a hindrance. And I got to be careful now with the way I explain this, because I'm not a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Right. But in some cases, the whole affirmative action or the MBDB program works against minorities. And here's why I say that. We have to fill out all this paperwork to get a designation that I have to share my personal net worth, my taxes, my financial, everything. They look with a microscope. So I have to spend all this time and money and effort with accountants and attorneys to get certified. Well, my white counterpart doesn't have to do any of that. So what happens is, so now I start out in the hole and now you ask me to go compete. So I'm now on a list 
list with other minority or disadvantaged businesses. And now it's almost like, I hate to say this, it's like you have a baseball team and you're asking them to go compete, but you tell one team, you got to have 25% of your team have to be handicapped, but you guys need to compete against this other team that doesn't have any handicapped players on it, but you expect them to be successful. And I like to say, look, you know, African-American business have the right to fail at the same rate as everyone else. And they do. <laughs> and so it's an unreasonable expectation yeah. that every minority firm that gets out there and, and, and gets certified is going to be successful. Not going to happen. The labor statistics state that most small businesses fail within the first five years of operation. That's all business, not minority business. So it's really kind of unfair. It's like, you're supposed to help us, but it's kind of like Eddie Haskell. You trip me down the steps and then you come down there and help me up and you want credit yeah. for helping me up. But you're the one that tripped me down the steps. And yeah, so the, that's the, so true. The stigma is is really unfortunate. Now, I'm not against affirmative action. You need some type of goal and way to measure whether you're meeting the goals that you've set. I just think that the system and the way they're going about it creates a problem because now you go to the majority firm and you say, hey, Mr. Majority Firm, we're a serious corporate client and we want you to have 25% minorities on your team. You just put me in a weak position to negotiate because mm. now he has 75% and now he's going to go out and find five other minority firms and give them each 5%. He comes back to the owner and said, hey, I met the goal. They get the contract, but you never really have to worry about that minority firm being your competitor because you can't really grow off 5% of anything. Right. And if the labor statistics are correct, those minority firms, a good 80, 90% of them will be out of business within the next five years. Wow. And you know, when you were talking about that, I know it's kind of a parallel conversation, but minority participation, what parts of the construction project, when you imagine a subs list, I mean, is it, I'd like to think that majority firms are doing their due diligence and offering opportunities to the engineering consultant and not just the landscaper or whomever. I mean, I don't know how to ask that, but is there any parity there with the opportunities that, you know, minority partners have? Yeah. I think you hit on an interesting point because there's the design side and there's the construction side, right? So on the design side, there are minority professionals that can participate at a high level, or at least they could certainly perform more than 25% of that work. That's one aspect of it. On the construction side, what has happened historically is that the demolition and the labor and, and some of that work was kind of set aside for the minorities. But if you have a huge project, there's not enough demolition on that project to really put a dent in the, the percentages that you're looking for. Sure. So if you only have one or two minority firms that do, let's say, plumbing, for example, or electrical work, and if they're any good and if they're smart, they're going to limit, they're not going to bite off more than they can chew. So there are a lot of public projects that may come along that you may not get any bids from a minority firm on because the ones that are competent enough to really do the work are busy, as they should be. So what needs to happen is we need to have more minority businesses in the industry. That's why I encourage people to start their own business. I encourage them to jump out there and so forth because we need to grow that pool. But once we grow that pool, they need opportunities to grow. And what will happen is if you don't give them opportunities to grow, you're going to constantly be churning out those four or five percent pieces of the work and you never have any growth, which incidentally is why I chose the professional service route of construction management, not only because that's where my education and experience came from, but I didn't have to deal with the low bid situation, the bonding capacity issue, the banking issues, you know, it's so forth. The union challenges. If you're a minority carpenter or electrician and you're in the union, majority of work in St. Louis is going to be union work by default, even if you do nothing, because the majority of the major firms are union contracts. So 
okay. Right. Well, if you want to have any significant work on any major project, you almost have to be a union contractor. Well, once that project is over, unless you have a hopper or backlog of other projects, you have to continue to pay those union dues while you're sitting on the bench. So most of the electricians, laborers, carpenters, they choose to start their own business and they choose to do it in a non-union way because they can do a lot of work and make ends meet with churches or certain private companies that don't require the bonding and or the union due issue. And they just have to support. Oh, it's so interesting to me. It's such a different lens through which the minority business owner sees. Yes, I did a paper when I was at WashU on project labor agreements. So we do PLAs here on various major projects. In the project labor agreement, in my opinion, the only way you should do a project labor agreement in St. Louis, if there are some rules and requirements in there that you would have a certain percentage of minorities that are going to be through the apprenticeship program and you're going to work them on the job. I'm not saying they're guaranteed anything, but if you have a multi-year project and you have an agreement that allows for minorities to be into the union on that project, well, what will happen is by the time that project is over, hopefully they'll get enough hours that'll become journeymen and they'll have seniority so that when that project is over, they're in a better, stronger position for future projects. If you're not going to do that, then why have a project labor agreement? Because most of the major projects are going to be union contractors anyway. Right. If you're the owner and you're going to go into an agreement like that, what are you getting out of it? The one thing they try to get initially is a no work stoppage, for example, if they go into striking. That's important, but that's pretty much the only thing the owners are really trying to protect themselves from. But if you're sincere about inclusion, then include in that project labor agreement language that allows you to ensure a certain percentage of minority apprentices or workers on the job. There's no guarantee they got to perform, but you at least need to have that in there so that you're trying to build the capacity of minorities in the union trade. That makes total sense. Complete sense. What steps, Tony, do you think, probably a lot of them, but what big steps can St. Louis owners take, particularly on privately funded construction projects? Just make sure that what they're building mirrors who they're allowing to build it, mirrors the community, mirrors the diversity, and that project diversity follows through to project delivery. That's another excellent question. Uh, I see you've done your homework because you know where the challenges are in our community. So there are some private institutions in the St. Louis area. They have a preferred bidders list. They have contracts that they've worked with that have a proven track record that perform well. So what important thing to do, I understand it greatly. But what happens is that some of those large construction companies do work on private entities or for private entities without having to put up a bond. They have a track record. They trust them. They know they're going to get the job done. So they don't make them put up a bond. So bonding is a real interesting phenomenon from an insurance standpoint. So what will happen is if that owner, that private owner wants minority inclusion and participation on the project, what will happen is that majority firm will ask those minority firms to put up a bond. Okay. So now they're putting up a bond and if they want to do this work on this private sector work, depending what their bonding capacity is, they may be tapped out if they got three other public projects that requires a bond. So right. now they can't really compete or participate in the private work because their bonding capacity is already tapped out. So unless the private owners waive the bond for those minority firms and maybe do a due diligence check with the minority firms, just as they've done with the majority firms, and they feel comfortable with those individuals, why have them put up the bond? But more importantly, have the majority firm put up the bonds that they have the deep pockets. They're the ones you're most comfortable with. They're the ones you're safest with. Well, let them bond it. And then put the minority firm on it. So the idea is the owner will be protected 
why have on belt and suspension? Are you going to have the minority firm and the majority firm put up a bond? Or are you just going to have a minority firm put up a bond and you're not going to have the majority firm put up a bond? It makes no sense. But if you really care yeah. about inclusion, then you should, I don't want to say wait, because you got to get protected. The job gets done. But if they're going to be a sub to a majority firm, then make the majority firm put up the bond. It almost seems counterproductive and more risky in an ironic sort of way for the majority firm or for the owner to, like you said, to set the minority firms at a disadvantage financially going into the project. It seems like they would want to do that. Exactly. And here's another good example. When the economy has gone in the tank the last three times that it's happened, it wasn't a minority firm that sent them into the tank. It was not the minority firm. If I were to ask you 15, 20 years ago, who still be standing today, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, or the Kwame Building Group, you wouldn't have said <laughs> the Kwame Building Group. So what happens is we spend so much time focused on the minority and the women-owned businesses of scrutinizing and challenging and questioning their capacity or capability or financial capacity to do business, but they're not the ones that have caused the problem. It's the ones that you don't know anything about, that you didn't scrutinize, that you just took it for granted because they were big or because they were white, that you were not going to have any problems. But those are the ones that caused most of the problems. Yeah, it's like the too big to fail. Exactly. fail. I mean, and the answer is, I mean, the answer for me is simple in every case. Be fair. Do the same thing for everyone. If you want the minority firm to put up a bond, make the majority firm put up a bond. If you want the minority firm to do X, Y, Z, have the, I mean, whatever scrutiny you have, you put the minority firms through, do the same thing for the majority firm. Now, nine times out of 10, they'll withstand the scrutiny. They'll have the financial capabilities and the financial resource, everything that it takes, but it still takes time and money to gather all that data and submit it to an entity to get approved for something money that the minority firm does not have. Wow. It just seems so. How young were we when we learned to be fair <laughs> and right. not to judge right. others, but it's just- Now you want to hear something really yeah. radical? If they're really serious about inclusion, what the majority, what the owners would do, going back to your corporate private sector comment, interview that the minority firm, select them first and let the minority firm select the majority firm. Wow. Ah. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen that happen? Never, never, <laughs> never. But just think about it. What will happen is everybody will win in a situation like that because the minority firm is going to pick the majority firm that they know will treat them fairly and will pay them timely, right? The majority firm, nine times out of 10, if the majority firm is going to be successful, has done work for that entity before. So it wouldn't be a new unknown entity to the owner. So every Everybody would come out a winner, but that's just too much power and authority to give to the minority firm for that thing ever work. Wow. That's a great question. I could talk to you all day and I'm sure we could listen to you all day, but I know you have to get back to work. But gosh, in this episode, we've been delighted to welcome Anthony or Tony Thompson, chairman and chief executive officer of the Quantity Building Group. And Tony, gosh, we're so glad you joined us today. Thank you. And you are truly welcome to come back anytime, any topic, because I've learned so much from you during the years and I'm glad our listeners had a chance to do so as well. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Tony, you're doing a great job here. This is something that's very needed in the community. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today on Build St. Louis. At Trivers, we believe that buildings can and should make a meaningful difference in their communities. We choose challenging projects, digging deep to solve hard problems. We seek sustainable solutions by repurposing more and wasting less. We create catalysts for change through hard work and ingenuity. Visit us online at trivers.com to learn more. Trivers. 
creating architecture of lasting positive consequence.